Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA as we dig into the Word of God. Stand for the reading of the Word. This morning's scripture reading is found in Ephesians chapter 4. And one of the benefits of having both scripture and prayer and the duty to preach the message today is you get to pick something that ties in. So this will definitely tie into the message today, so be paying attention. We're actually going to reference back to it in the message. Ephesians 4 verse 1, and we're going to read to verse 16. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean, except that he also had descended into the lowest parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all heavens, so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the service, to build up the body of Christ, until all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the statue which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result... We are no longer children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness, in deceitful scheming. But, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects unto him who is the head, even Christ, for whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Let's sing together the church's one foundation.
Well, we essentially just sang what I'm going to be speaking of this morning, so I guess we can all go home. (laughs) Now, I'm going to be reiterating a lot of those points. I do want to speak on the church today, its foundation. Uh, So that's the plan. We're going to speak about the church, and let me just say from the beginning, uh, there's much that can be said about the church. It's It's a broad topic. Lots of different areas uh, that we could focus on, uh, dwell on, and get into. But I suppose my primary intention is simply to give you a a general sense of thankfulness and appreciation for the church. And I believe it's uh, there's there's a sense of appreciation that's gained when we understand the truthfulness of how the church came to be, how it grows, uh, how it's preserved, as well as. uh, provides a contrast to all the world that surrounds us as well. So I think there's much to be gleaned there for us by way of being thankful and understanding what the church is and and that it is a blessing to us. And just a fair warning as we start, I have a lot of scripture that we're going to reference. I'll be jumping around a lot. Don't feel like you need to jump to every verse. Um, Hope is that uh, you retain what's said, and that it's edifying to you. So before we begin, let's have another word of prayer, and then we'll look into today's study. Heavenly Father, we come again to you, come into your presence with the intention to look seriously into your word. Lord, we know that nothing is possible apart from your spirit residing upon us. So that's our prayer right now. We pray as we look into your word. We pray as I deliver this message. I ask that you would give me the words to speak. We pray that the words of my mouth and the ears and the hearts of those that hear it would be pleasing in your sight, would be edifying to each other, and that you would be praised. Lord, if anything said in foolishness, if anything is said of opinion, we pray that that would be stripped away from the hearers, but only your truth to remain. That would be sealed to the hearts of each one of the listeners here. So thank you again for this opportunity and receive glory today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Kind of the reason that this has been laid on my heart resides from a men's group a few weeks ago. Uh, We finished our study in the book of Acts. And as is our tradition, when we finish one book and before we jump into another, we kind of take the time to... Uh, look into what's been going on with each other, kind of a catch-up period as we call it. Uh, We talk to each other about what's going, kind of go around the room and each person takes a a turn and we we talk about what's been going on in our lives, what the Lord has done for us, what are we struggling with. We talk about our weaknesses, uh, specific prayer requests that we might have, uh, and we share those with with each other and we kind of unburden those things. And I'm thankful that the Lord has blessed us with a men's group and men that are willing to do this for the benefit of each other. Uh, And while we were sharing with each other a few weeks ago when we went through this process, there was a common theme that uh, emerged from it. As we opened up with each other, as we talked about our challenges and, and the things of life that were burdening us, and we developed this strong appreciation for each other and for the church. And I think the the theme was kind of this. Everyone said something similar. Uh, I don't know how I would get through my particular challenges 
if I didn't have my faith in Christ and the mutual encouragement and fellowship of the body of Christ. That all kind of resonated with us, and we had this appreciation that we could go to a place like we have here at GCA and be part of the body of Christ and to understand that here there's a peace, there's a place that we can uh, approach God in its truthfulness and that we can have fellowship with like-minded believers. And we really gained a, a renewed sense of appreciation for each other and the fact that we're part of something bigger, the church, um, that we are separate from the world that's outside of us and that we have a place to, where we can be continually anchored and grounded and we can come here and share in that like-mindedness with a common purpose that provides us opportunities to be mutually beneficial to each other and that gives us encouragement. And so going through this exercise together with this mutual realization of just the dependency we had and the necessity of the church and how important it was to each of us. And I confess to you, and I suppose that probably many of you experience this similarly, that you know our flesh from time to time is perfectly capable of convincing ourselves or telling ourselves, well, you know, if I go to church on Sunday morning and check in, I'll I'll listen to the message, maybe I'll retain half of it, and I'll leave on Sunday morning. And that's just, I could check that box, and it's basically a, a new start to the week. And it's just a kind of a habitual thing that we go through uh, to start another week. But I'm convinced that Scripture has a higher expectation for us, has a higher expectation for the church. Church is not just a place where we go to download information into our heads, but it's a a place of mutual encouragement and edification with an aim of glorifying the one who is the head of the church. That's our purpose. That's why we're here. The author of Hebrews says it this way in chapter 3 of Hebrews. He says, Take care, brothers and sisters, that there will not be any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another Every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so the Holy Spirit here, through the author of Hebrews, lays out something very important for us. That consistent mutual encouragement and exhortation within the church not only serves as a mean to build up one another, but it actually provides protection against the deceitfulness of sin. In other words, without mutual encouragement that the church provides, we become extremely vulnerable to the deception of our sin. Being deceived into thinking we're sufficient on our own, being deceived into thinking I've got enough knowledge, therefore I'm sufficient, being deceived into thinking, well, no one else can really be a benefit to me. Maybe I don't. My personality doesn't gel or blend with the other personalities in the church that, that maybe I don't need them as much. That's the deceitfulness of sin. The author here of Hebrews says and encourages us daily to stir each other up, to encourage one another, to be an active part of the body of Christ. You know, a sheep that is apart 
from the body, apart from the flock, is one that's very vulnerable. It's a sheep that's not being guided. It's a sheep that's not being fed. It's a sheep that becomes very vulnerable to prey, predators out there that seek to do it harm and damage. And it's a sheep that is susceptible uh, into falling into ruts and ravines and all kinds of dangerous places. But a sheep that's part of the flock is one that's being edified, one that, that's being fed, one that's being protected, one that's being preserved. And so we see the importance of being part of the flock, a part of the body of Christ. And the author of Hebrews actually continues later in chapter 10 and says this, kind of reiterating that same point. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day draw nigh. So the scripture here contains an, an expectation for us within the church that we are to be consistent in our assembly together and that we are to be mindful to take thought of how to stimulate one another, both to love and to action and to good deeds. So there's an interdependency within the church. And we read that in Ephesians 4 this morning. We're going to look at that again here in just a minute, this understanding that the body is more healthy when it is together, when it is united, when it is encouraging one another, when we are sharing with one another, when we are bearing one another's burdens. All of that is important. And I think that's kind of what we were experiencing in men's group as we shared with each other. And we were able to kind of point out what the Lord has done for us, kind of point out our, our different challenges together. And that served as a way to stimulate all of us together and realize that we're not in this alone. We share some of the same difficulties. And when those burdens are shared together with each other, there's encouragement as well within that. So it's a wonderful thing. And I'm glad to be a part of the men's group for that. And, and I don't want to just limit it, that to the men's group. It, that happens here every Sunday, you know, with fellowship before and after church and you know, even yesterday, we got to get together and help out the clothiers, help you all move. And that was edifying and helpful for you and for us. So we're thankful that the Lord gives us those opportunities to bless and care for one another. So I want to go back and look at this opening uh, scripture reading that we looked at in Ephesians uh, 4 and just kind of reiterate that, set that in your minds as we study and examine the church and what it is and where it came from. So back in Ephesians 4, uh, verses 11 through 16, and again it reads this way, And he, who's he here? He is Christ, gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors, and some as teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the service, to build up the body of Christ. That's the purpose until we all attain the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the statue which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children 
tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness, by deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow, to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, for whom the whole body being fitted together and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. That's a wonderful passage. It's a wonderful glimpse of the church and how important all those aspects are. And it's God that establishes those leaders, those overseer roles, and they all serve to grow and to develop the body. With that in mind, and kind of off of that, I want to begin by looking at what is the church, defining the church, and once we have a good handle on that, we can move into uh, some other aspects of the church, like why is the church here? What is it for? What, what's its goal? So we're going to look at some of those things this morning. The first text I want to look at is in uh, Matthew chapter 16. The reason we're coming here is this is the first mention of the church in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 16. And so we're going to read this passage and then we're going to define what the church is and start exploring some things about the church. So Matthew chapter 16, we'll be looking at verses 13 through 18. This is a familiar passage to you. This is the passage where Jesus inquires of the disciples, who do you say that I am? And of course, we know the response here. So let's read the, uh, let's read the text and begin our study into the church. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overpower it. So within this context in Matthew 16, with Jesus asking the disciples who he is, we get the reference, the first New Testament, the first reference in Scripture uh, of the church. And the word here, the Greek word, as we've referenced before, uh, is ekklesia. And that ekklesia, that means assembly or congregation. And within the word ekklesia, there's two compound Greek words that are being used here that, that help us understand its definition. Uh, the first Greek word is ek, meaning out from. And the second word is kaleo, meaning to call. And so we can understand ecclesia to mean to be called out from. And we're going to discuss as we look into the church what it is we're called out from and what it is we're called to this morning. But let's look a little bit more at uh, this particular passage in Matthew chapter 16. The first thing we need to know is that uh, Jesus describes the church here as my church. I will build my church, I will build my ecclesia. And ecclesia can mean and reference 
a, a general group of assembled people. We know that in Acts chapter 19, Ecclesia is there in verse 32, and it refers to a group of uh, Ephesians that were stirred up by Demetrius the silversmith, and they were in confusion, uh, upset at Paul because uh, he had, uh, was keeping people from making the idols, and of course Demetrius and the silversmiths were upset about that. And it says that they were stirred up. The assembly was stirred up at that point. So that can refer to a, a general assembly. But what distinguishes ecclesia here in Matthew 16 uh, and establishes it more than just the general term for assembly is how Jesus refers to it as my ecclesia, my church. The first thing we need to know about the church to be able to answer is the question to whom does the church belong? To whom does the church? Who's the establisher? Who's the foundation? And Jesus is clear here that the church is his possession. I will build my church. It's his. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20 emphasizes that. It scores, uh, it gives us an indication again who the ownership of the church belongs to, who has the rightful deed of the possession. Paul says in verse 19, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, but you have been bought with a price? Therefore, glorify God with your body. You've been paid for with a price. You've been purchased. Who is it that has purchased you? How have you been purchased? It's Christ. He bought you. He redeemed you from the slave market, and he paid the heavy price with his own blood. And so he has ownership. He is the one who has the ownership and possesses the church. In the next chapter, in First uh, Corinthians there, in chapter 7, Paul reiterates this. He says, For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's free man. Likewise... He was called, while free, is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves for men. So here Paul is saying, whether you were initially free or whether you're initially a slave, you're now owned by Christ, not men. Regardless of the condition you were in, you are his because you've been bought by a price. So it is his church. It is Christ's church. He is the one who has ownership. Just one more point on that. Acts 20, and this is Paul uh, speaking to the elders of the Ephesian church as they came down to meet him as he was traveling back to Jerusalem. And Paul is encouraging them and advising them on how to handle the church there at Ephesus. And he says this to them, Be on guard, this is verse 28 of chapter 20, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. To shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So the scripture is clear. We need to know, we need to understand that Christ has purchased his bride. He is the owner. He is the one who controls the church. And he gives and gifts elders and pastors and teachers within the church. Those are the overseers that function in the church. But like we read in 
uh, Ephesians chapter 4, they're placed there by him. So all of that flows from him. He's still the one that has control. Christ is the owner. And any church that would abuse that or confuse that, any church where the leaders think that the church should be modeled after their opinions, after their vision, their ideas, that's an abuse of the church. People that wish to exploit the church for their own personal gain, whatever that means, Peter speaks very strongly against that. Uh, there's a serious danger of judgment for those that would see themselves as the head of the church and would abuse the position that they're in. Peter in chapter 2, or in Second uh, Peter says, uh, this way of their judgment for those who are, are false teachers and abusers of the church, that in their greed, they will exploit you, that is the church, with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So it's a very serious charge to confuse the ownership and the leadership of who it is that is in charge of the church. And if there's any that are in a situation where the church is being abused, the bride is being abused and being taken advantage of, and Christ is not the head of that congregation, turn from such a group and flee and go to a church where Christ is the head, where Christ is the foundation, where His vision and His truth are proclaimed, not the ideas of men. So back to Matthew 16. That's the first point we need to get a grasp on. That's the first point we need to get a handle on is to know, first and foremost, the church belongs to Christ. It is His. And secondly, the other thing we need to pull out here is that He says, I will build my church. So He is the one responsible for its growth. And so because He's the owner, because He's the possessor of the church, He then controls its establishment its growth, its direction, its purification, its protection. All of it is under His hand and under His sovereign control. And that's great news. Because if He's responsible for building up the church, that means we're not. That means the growth of the church is not dependent upon the cunningness of men, our ability to persuade, or popular church growth strategies and techniques that we see so prevalent in the modern church. So because the church belongs to Christ, it makes perfect sense then that he is the one responsible for its growth, for its development, for its building up. And if he's responsible, that means the church growth techniques and programs and strategies, those are essentially turning the church into a circus they have something for everyone, but nothing meaningful for anyone. So we need to know the building and constructing of the church is all of him. The other side of that, the good thing about that too, is because it's all of him, because he's responsible for the building of the church and the development, that also means that he can build his church despite our inabilities, despite our weaknesses, Despite all of the many things that we fall so short of, he can still establish and grow his church. He can do it when there's religious freedom. He can do it in times of persecution and trouble as well. He's going to grow his church 
regardless of the conditions that men wish to implement onto the church. He will grow his church. We know this is true from the, the foundation of the church. If we go back to uh, uh, Acts chapter 2, uh, we know here in Acts chapter 2, this is when the Holy Spirit comes to the church at Pentecost. The Lord say there, Acts chapter 2, verse 47, And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So it's very much the Lord who is growing the church. He's the one adding to the number. He's the one responsible for its growth and development. And while we're here in Acts 2, I just want to touch briefly, this is the area, this is the scripture, this is the, the part of scripture where we know that the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost and the church was established from that. And, the, and we understand the modern church to be built off of that. We know in the rest of the book of the Acts, the, the church develops first to the Jews and then also to the Gentiles. Because of that, so we, we really understand this portion of Scripture to be you know, the beginning of the church. But that's not to say that God hasn't always had his people. Uh, we know that Paul says in uh, Romans 11 that God has always had his people. He refers to it in Romans 11 as a remnant according to God's gracious choice and gives the example of God preserving for himself 7,000 who didn't bow the knee uh, to Baal in Elijah's day. God has always had his people. He's always had his remnant. But we do understand that the, with the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost, the church as we know it, from there it developed. And so the Lord added to the number of the church as many as he saw each day. And he continues to do that throughout the book of Acts. He's the one responsible for the growth. He's the one who develops. And again, we saw that same thing when we looked at uh, Ephesians 4. He's the one. He's the one uh, who gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists, the, the pastors, the teachers. And he gave them for the equipping, or that's the perfecting, the maturity of the saints for the work of the service and the building up of the body of Christ. So God is the one who establishes these offices, these ministries that allow and cause the growth and the maturity and the equipping, the building up that is the perfecting of the body of Christ. I want to speak a bit on the perfecting, the maturity of the body of Christ, and to know for sure that he is the one who does that. He is the one who matures and grows both the church as a whole, but also each individual. If you'll remember in Galatians chapter 3, what we're going to look at, in this passage, the church of Galatia had been infiltrated by legalists, and Paul wrote them a very stern letter about that. And he says this about perfecting, or how one is perfected, in chapter 3. After calling them out for their foolishness, he says this, This is the only thing I want from you to know. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law? Or by hearing of the, with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? It's a rhetorical question. They're not being perfected by the flesh. They're being perfected by the Spirit, by the work of God, by the work of the Holy Spirit in them. Having begun by the Spirit, continue in the Spirit. 
There's nothing we can do. There's nothing our flesh can do to itself to improve or to perfect itself. There's no human effort that can improve the flesh. But only Christ, through his spirit, is capable of building and growing and maturing the church, both in the sense of the church as a whole, but individually as well, for the maturity and the growth of the individual. Being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. That's in Philippians 1 verse 6. And again, just to underscore the responsibility and who it is that's responsible for the growth, the development, the maturity of the church. Paul, 1 Corinthians 3, when he talks about his ministry, says, I planted. Also talks about Apollos. Apollos watered. But who is it that gave the increase? Who is it that caused the growth? God caused the growth. So are you getting a sense for who's responsible for the growth and the development of the church? I hope that you are. Those scriptures are clear. So from this passage in Matthew 16, we can understand first and foremost what the church is, its definition, and then who has ownership of the church and who is building the church. But there's one more point to draw out here concerning the church because Jesus said I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overpower it the gates of Hades will not overpower it we understand how Christ is the owner he's the head he's the builder but also he is the protector the one who preserves and protects his own bride the one who protects his own bride and isn't it wonderful to know that we can have great confidence to know that the greatest forces, the greatest spiritual forces that wish to come against us do not have the power to do so. They can't tempt us or draw us away simply because of the strength that he possesses in preserving his own. That's wonderful news for us. It's wonderful to know that we're not responsible for the growth of the church. He is. And it's wonderful also to know that he's the one who protects and preserves Jesus, in his prayer to the Father in uh, John chapter 17, says this in verse 15, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them, that is to preserve, that is to protect them from the evil one. So he is the one who protects and preserves the church from all that would come against it. He's determined to protect his own because he paid a great price, the greatest price he paid for his church, and so he is going to be sure to preserve and to protect it. Again in John, in John chapter 10, Jesus says this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I will give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them from my Father's hand. I like that. I like the fact that no one is able to take the purchased possession from the hands of the Father. They're held securely, clutched in his arm. Nothing can come against it. That's preservation. That's grace is what that is. So those three things are so important for us to know that Christ, he alone is the owner of the church. He alone is the builder, the developer, and grower, and the one who grows the church to maturity. 
and he alone can protect it for all that would come against it. So we also want to understand uh, something else about uh, ecclesia. We already reiterated, we, we looked at the fact that ek means to be out from and ecclesia means to call. So that is the definition of to be called from, to be called out from. And so we need to know what it is that we have been called from and what it is that we're called to. So we're going to look at that a little bit. In Romans 8, uh, 28, Paul tells us that we are called according to his purpose. In Ephesians 4, he tells us that we are to walk in a manner worthy of our calling with which we have been called. So there's an expectation, there's a definite purpose in our calling, and there's an expectation for our behavior within that calling, that we are to walk according in a manner worthy of that calling. So when we're trying to understand what we've been called from and what we're being called to, First uh, Peter actually gives us a, uh, a nice kind of simple explanation of that. Um, in First Peter 2.9, he says, uh, gives us kind of plain understanding of what it is we've been called from and what we've been called to. Peter says, the reason we're his possession is so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So God has called the church from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of light, from one to the other. And the two are complete opposites, complete opposing kingdoms, calling us from darkness to light, called from the domain of this world into his glorious kingdom. Because we're Christ's possession, because we're his church, he has called us out from the domain of darkness. We reference John 17. We're going to look at that again. This is... Uh, Jesus speaking to the Father in John 17, verse 14. I have given them your word, speaking of to the Father, about the church, about his own. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. Why? Because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Dearly beloved, we have been called out of the world, out of this present evil age. We're not to consider ourselves as part of it. And the result of being in Christ is to be not of the world. And the result of that is that the world is going to come against you. The world is going to hate you for that, just as it hated Christ. So we are to expect that. We're to expect difficulty and challenges and hatred from the world because it hated Christ. Jesus said that in John 15. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. As the church is one who is called, expect hatred. Expect it from the world. Don't expect to get along with the world. Expect difficulty. Expect the challenges. Expect not to get your way. 
because we've been called from the world to his glorious kingdom. And so we need to expect hatred from it, and we need to, be, to expect that we will be opposed by the world. And we're not to be partakers. We're not to be friends with the world. We're, we're called to be sanctified, to be set aside from the world for a holy use. Listen to this that James says in James chapter 4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Wow, that's, that's very serious um, to recognize that friendship with the world is to be an enemy with God. And it's easy for us to, to think that, well, the world's not that bad. I can play in the world. I can do this. I can get away with that. You know, the world is neutral. Um, our flesh can deceive us in that way. But here it says it's not neutral. It's not something that just can be shrugged at or winked at. It's literally hostility towards God to be friends with the world. And it is a di- in direct opposition of God. Our flesh is deceitful. As we read earlier, the deceitfulness of sin. And it desires to engage with the world. It likes the world's way of thinking. It likes to placate itself. It likes to um, avoid confrontation. It likes to uh, appease and appease all men. And yet that is not what we are called to do. We're called to be separate from the world. If we go back to, and this is just fascinating to me, if we go back to Matthew chapter 16 and the passage that we looked at with, with Peter and, and Jesus complimenting him about uh, how he knew that, uh, and, and actually called him blessed because he knew that Christ was the son of the living God. Of course, it was revealed to him from heaven, not from the intuition or intellect of men. But it's very interesting to see after Jesus gives him these compliments and, and says that he has the keys to the kingdom and says that, uh, you know, he is going to be given this authority. What happens just a few? This is like Peter's greatest moment at this, in this particular period. But what happens in the next few verses just shortly after that is fascinating. So starting in, in verse 21, picking up the story for, from this after Peter is complimented. What happens next? Verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and to be killed and to be raised on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Wow. He was just complimented by Jesus. And now a few minutes later, just shortly after this, Jesus says, calls him Satan. Get behind me, Satan. And you're a stumbling block. He said, Peter, you're the rock. Now you're a stumbling block. You're not setting your, thing, your mind on the things of God. You're setting your mind on the things of men. And that's how easily our flesh can deceive itself. 
Peter wanted it man's way. Peter wanted it easy. Peter wanted the kingdom without the cross. Peter wanted the triumph without the suffering. And that's man's way of thinking. But that's not God's way. That's not how God determined it. Determined it. The suffering of Christ was prophesied and it was determined and it, there was a purpose for it as we know. And so Ephesians 5 also makes it abundantly clear as well. Ephesians 5 verse 5 says, For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous person who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So here, therefore, do not be partakers with them. Be set apart, be sanctified, calling you out of the world. Do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. So we are called out of the world, called from darkness to light. That is what we are called with, and that is a holy calling. And I hope you're seeing it as a holy calling, as a holy calling, because it is. And it's very serious. God is very serious about his possession and preserving its purity. And he deserves a pure and holy bride. First Thessalonians 4 7 says, For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. He's called us to be set aside for his holy work, not for our impurity, not for pursuit of the flesh. 2 Corinthians 6 underscores this again. Do not be bound with unbelievers. That's pretty straightforward. That's pretty simple. That's pretty clear. Do not be bound with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what is a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. God has always wanted the purity and the holiness of his bride to be set apart, to be called out from the world. Even in the Old Testament, we know that the people of God were called to be protected and apart from the world. Even to the degree where there was times when the children of Israel were called to destroy whole people groups um, because of their idols and their false religion that was among those people, that they were to destroy everyone. That, that, that sounds harsh to us, but that's the reality of how seriously God takes the purity of his people. Mingling and mixing with the world is very dangerous and very evil. So we have to see it as such. We have to see it as what we've been called from. That's what we've been called from. What is it that we've been called to? We touched a little bit on that with Peter telling us we've been called from darkness to the marvelous light. But what are some other things that we've been called to? What have we been sanctified into? What have we been set apart for? Peter again says this in uh, 1 Peter 2 and verse 20. 
just as a, as a side note to think about this, what Peter is saying here in this passage compared to what he said to Jesus about Christ's suffering. May it never be. And Jesus said, uh, get behind me, Satan. Listen to what Peter says here. Verse 20, chapter 2 of 1 Peter. For what credit is there when you sin and are harshly treated? You endure it with patience. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it. This finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose. You have been called for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his footsteps. Called for this purpose to suffer with Christ. Christ suffered. So our expectation is that if we're in Christ, we too are called to suffer as well. And isn't it amazing that Peter can say this after he was talking to Christ and saying, Lord, you are not called to suffer. May it never be that that would happen. But this shows this is an example of how God builds and develops his church, the growth through the Holy Spirit that was instilled in Peter so that Peter now sees and understands purpose and meaning in God's intention for suffering. What a wonderful example that is. I think we can all kind of relate to Peter in, in, in many ways. But the scripture is here clear that we are called to suffer in unity with Christ. Paul says the same thing to, uh, to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1. He says this, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. So join in the suffering, called to a holy calling. There's, again, there's that expectation that if we're Christ's, if we're called out of this world, then we're called to suffer with him as well. That's part of it. But I want you to get this. I want you to hold on to this, that the suffering that we're called to is not pointless. It's not for naught. It has purpose. We referenced Romans 8 previously, but let's look at Romans 8, verse 16, and we'll see the purpose of that suffering. Paul says in Romans 8, 16, the Spirit itself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. The suffering is necessary for the glorification. We suffer with him, we will also be glorified with him. So we have to understand that our calling to suffer with him is not purposeless, it's not pointless, but it results in glorification, just as Christ suffered and then was glorified and is glorified and will be glorified. So too, if we are in him, if we suffer for his sake, we too will be glorified with him. And that's a wonderful promise that we have. Hold on to that when we are in times of suffering, to know that there is glorification tied to it. I'm happy about that. And 
just to uh, look at another verse about what we're called to and what the expectation of the church is, I want to look at uh, 2 Thessalonians 2, starting in verse 13. And this is a, a, a wonderful sequence that articulates kind of step by step what God's purpose is in his calling and choosing of his church. It lists it out, and it's, it's a wonderful sequence here in verse 13. Uh, Paul says, but we, he's writing to the church, of, the church at Thessalonica, so he says, writing to the church, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord. Why, Paul? Why should we do that? Why should we give thanks to God? Because God has chosen you. When, Paul, when did God choose us? From the beginning, he says. For what reason did he choose us, Paul? He says, for salvation. How did he do this, Paul? Through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. And what is his ultimate purpose in this? His choosing and sanctifying us? It was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a wonderful secret. That says joint heirs with Christ, that God's choosing, his calling us, his sanctifying us by the spirit and faith in truth. All of this has purpose that redounds to our glory, united with him, that we may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful blessing that is for the church, that we can look forward to that and to know that glorification comes through suffering. And it's God's purpose, and he intended it that way. Now, I want to conclude, and I want to end kind of on this note. In this passage, we see, and we, we just read, that the church is sanctified by the Spirit and by faith into what? Into what is it sanctified? Sanctified by the Spirit and by faith into truth. Truth is what sets us apart. Truth is what we are sanctified in. Christ is our glorious foundation. He's the head of the church, which is being built up and established. He's the power behind it. And he sanctifies us, sets us apart in his truth. Paul knew the importance of the truth and the importance of passing it along as he did to uh, stressing the truth to his understudy, Timothy, charging him repeatedly, Oh, Timothy, give heed to doctrine. Pay attention to truth. Be consumed by it. Truth is the hallmark of a healthy church. It's what we persist in. It's what we are unwilling to compromise, the truth. Christ has given us that truth. He sanctified us in it. He's placed us in that truth. Paul says to Timothy in chapter 3, 1 Timothy, I'm writing these things to you, Timothy. I'm writing these things, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I delay... I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. And by the way, when he talks about the household of God there, he's talking about the church. And he had just laid out the roles of, of deacons and, and elders and overseers, their qualifications in this passage. And so he's reiterating that, how to conduct 
oneself in the household of God. And this is how he describes that household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of truth. The church is the buttress. It's the, it's the pillar of truth. It's what we cherish. It's what we stand on. It's what we pursue. It's what we celebrate. And it stands in contrast to all the deceitfulness. The world doesn't much care about truth. The world cares about manipulation and twisting the truth and taking advantage of lies for its own purpose. But the church is the pillar and support of truth. And I think going back to our little exercise we had at men's group, it's because of that truth, because we could come here and really appreciate and know the truth that we could then realize and, and fellowship mutually because the truth is so much better than what's out there. It stands in such great contrast to what's out there, the lies, the deception, and it's so wonderful to be able to come here to be a part of a place that is serious about the truth, a place that is the pillar and support of the truth. The church must be that. It has to be that. Truth is paramount. When we have that truth, when we stand on that truth, we can look at the things of the world. We can receive the distress and the tribulations of the world and know that we can get through that because of Christ, because of the truth that he has given us because of the hope of his truth. There's a solace here. There's an encouragement. There's a joy here. There's a hope, even in difficulty, perhaps because of difficulty, because he, the king, is here. This is his enterprise. He's the one building it. He's the one who owns it. He's the one who establishes it, and he's guiding and using and working the, with the church for his purpose, for his glory. And we get to benefit in that. Scripture informs us that the world is passing away and all its lusts with it. But in the midst of that, Christ is building his church and preserving it and holding it and developing it and protecting it. It's the one commodity that exists that has transcendent value. It's going to be here. Even when all of this burns in fervent heat, the church remains and is purified and is with Christ. So I encourage you to invest in the church. I encourage you um, to see the value in the church, to see the importance, to know that the greatest price was paid for the church. And so we ought to place a premium a high value on the church and what we have here in Smyrna at GCA with each other. This is the most important thing that we have, this unity. I want to end on this note, thinking about Saul as he was going to Damascus to persecute the church in pursuit of uh, the Christians there. What is it that the Lord said to him on his way there? As he was persecuting the church, Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? I am Jesus, the one whom you persecute. The way in which you treat the church is how you treat Christ. You cannot treat the church poorly 
and treat Christ in a way that honors him. How you treat the church is how you treat Christ. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother, who he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. That's for John 4.20. You can't love Christ and hate your brother. How we treat the church is how we treat Christ. When did we see you hungry? When did we feed you, Lord? When did we see you thirsty and give you drink? When were you a stranger and we invited you in? When were you naked and we came to you? When were you sick? And when were you in prison and we came to you? What's the king's answer to that question in Matthew? He says, truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these, the least of my brethren, you did it to me. So how we treat his brethren, how we treat the church, how we treat those who are the Lord's, it's how we treat him. So we need to take very seriously the church, appreciate it, love it, encourage one another, care for one another as we desire to care for Christ. This is his purchased possession paid with a great price. So we need to cherish her. We need to love and care for her, the bride. Let's end there. I want to end with a word of prayer. Father God, we're thankful for your purchased possession to be called, to be chosen, to be a part of that. The great blessing that is tied to that. Your church, preserved here on earth, despite a world that hates us because it hated you. And yet you have promised to grow and to build your church for your purpose, for your goodness, however you desire. <clears throat> Nothing can get in the way of that. No human endeavor to come against that or even spiritual, even the gates of Hades cannot come or overpower that. We're so thankful that you have built your church. You continue to develop it. You continue to grow it. We're thankful what you have done for us here in Smyrna, Tennessee, here, this little body of believers that you have blessed us with. Help us to appreciate and care and love one another if you taught us to do, to cherish the church, to cherish the bride for which you paid such a high price. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God. <laughs>